Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hello, I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm sitting in for Jesse Brown this week. Joining me today on Shortcuts is independent Jewish voices, communications, and media lead, former journalist, and unfortunately, Habs fan. Oh, Ryan, that hurts. <laughs> unfortunately. Aaron Lakoff, we are going to battle Habs versus Leafs, but that's not what we're talking about today on the show. Sadly, we have a lot to talk about, so welcome to Shortcuts. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Violence in Gaza has translated to violence on Canadian soil. We need to follow up on our conversation from last week on today's show. Also today on the show, Michelle Latimer breaks her silence and insists she's Indigenous. You may have seen the original article from Jorge Barrera and Ganeseo Deer, and she is now responded. We're going to dig into that and more today on the show. This episode is brought to you by Nate Hill, Andrew Rutland, Jenna Lair, Michael Dunford, Hasefa Wajid, Chris Soller, Mark Kazush, and Craig. Hi, my name is Craig. I live in Whitby, Ontario and I work in insurance. I support CanadaLand because I love your content, perspective, Thunder Bay and Commons are fantastic. Same with Wag the Doug. Really love what you guys are doing. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, I want to preface this first segment by repeating what I said on Twitter. I am not equipped to speak to what is happening in the West Bank. I've been asked by friends to lend support and to speak up. 
I'm working on educating myself more, and my silence here is not meant to be complicity. I am respectfully listening and learning. To begin, though, free Palestine. Aaron, I am completely frozen with not just not fear. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say fear. I, I think that's far too selfish, and this isn't about me at all. I am frozen by the inability to articulate a position. I am frozen with the inability to even have a conversation about this. My good heart and my good mind goes toward peace. And I hope and dream that that one day both Israel and Palestine can coexist and can find a way toward peace. And, and that's as much as I can say unequivocally. I can also say unequivocally that being here today with you is an honor and a privilege because you are someone that not only um, is invested in the conversation, but I think you need to stick handle through a very difficult conversation in your work and in your life. And so I'm really glad that you could join us to, to set the table for this conversation. And I'm, I'm eager to hear uh, your side of this and, and your experiences from your organization's point of view this week, because, you know, some of the biggest news that broke nationally here uh, in Canada were the protests that broke out here on Canadian soil, representing both pro-Israel and pro-Palestine sides. Mm-hmm. And I should say, you know, that you did work as a journalist. You you currently work at an organization that is explicitly an advocacy group. Independent Jewish Voices Canada uh, self-describes on their Twitter bio as a grassroots organization in Canada grounded in Jewish tradition that opposes all forms of racism and advocates for justice and peace for all in Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. And so to begin, I guess, we'll we'll look at, at, at the way even just the protests uh, locally in Canada were covered here this this past weekend. Global, via the Canadian press wire, uh, runs a headline, Tensions flare at Israel and Palestinian demonstrations in Toronto and Montreal. Nothing about the, the tens of thousands of people that were there peacefully, right? Mm-hmm. The, the tensions rise to the top. This one here, uh, Israel's Canadian supporters rally more pro-Palestinian demonstrations held as violence continues in Gaza. Jewish groups accuse pro-Palestinian demonstrators of assault in Toronto. NDP MP joins rally. The CBC mentions that there's a pro-Palestinian rally, pro-Israel rally. Like there's, in the headlines themselves, in the pieces themselves, they seem to be divisive uh, right from the jump, right from the hop. And and I'm not sure how helpful that is in helping us uh, understand, you know, what is actually going on. You know, we saw a very unfortunate video hit the internet here uh, from Toronto, where it looked like these pro-Palestinian uh, supporters jumped and, and physically assaulted a group of pro-Israel supporters. And that hits social media before it hits anything else. And the Canadian media picks that up and immediately, and of course, it looks like anti-Semitism, right? Of mm-hmm. course, it looks like violence until we see the whole video. And so I don't know what else to say other than it just feels like we're getting it wrong here yeah. in, in the Canadian media. Is, is, that, is that fair to say? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, let's start with that specific incident because that that's really fascinating. Um, so yeah, these were really intense scuffles that broke out um, kind of in and around the massive Palestine solidarity demonstration in Toronto that happened on Saturday. Uh, so just like you said, yeah, the first videos that come out appear to be, uh, you know, this group of like innocent, you know, Jewish pro-Palestinian demonstrators who were there who all of a sudden got attacked by ostensibly Palestinian folks or, you know, pro-Palestinian demonstrators. And then we saw this image go viral of, of uh, this Jewish man, an elder Jewish man with blood streaming down his face. The pro-Israel advocacy groups in Canada, such as Sija and B'nai B'rith, really picked that up and started running with it. It prompted tweets from Justin Trudeau, uh, Ford, you know, Toronto Mayor John Tory, all condemning violence and anti-Semitism. And then, of course, the bigger story emerges, right? And so the, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network did an investigation on it. And then that uh, that report was picked up in CBC. And I'm really glad that the story was set straight because these were not just like innocent pro-Israel folks who came out to, um, to you know, get their message across. These people were affiliated with the Jewish Defense League, the JDL, which is an FBI-identified uh, terrorist organization. And they're extremely violent. Like, their existence is to essentially go out and to instigate uh, Palestinians and, and, and pro-Palestinian demonstrators. And so, you know, the, this guy, the, this elder man who got beaten, I mean, you know, and I do want to preface this all by saying, you know, violence against against innocent people is wrong. Anti-Semitism, of course, is wrong. It needs to be condemned. We do see instances of anti-Semitism that happen in these rallies. I would say they are few and far between, but they happen and they need to be denounced, right? But you can't you can't then take those and paint a whole demonstration of tens of thousands of people and a massive peaceful movement happening across Canada as anti-Semitic. And so, you know, this, this, this elder guy who got beaten up, turns out he's a member of this biker club, the Rider of the Covenant who are linked with the Jewish Defense League. And so then like the photos that emerge after show him running away from this crowd of Palestinians, but he's got a knife in his hand. And then you see the longer video, which actually shows, you know, it shows these JDL folks uh, approaching this group of Palestinians and, and, you know, instigating them. And the Palestinians are walking away at first and they're like, come on. You know, so it's just like you can't you can't play victim when you come out to these peaceful rallies with knives and, and batons. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And so I'm really glad that some of the reporting uh, in the aftermath corrected that story and is really trying to draw attention to the fact that like this really violent and dangerous hate group, the JDL, is unfortunately active in Toronto. Which kind of lends itself to the conversation that recently started with this open letter that circulated this past week. This letter was written by an anonymous group of concerned Canadian journalists and criticizes the lack of nuance in Canadian coverage of Israel-Palestine. Skittish newsroom leaders for fearing the deluge of complaints that follow the coverage and the commonly heard excuses for shying away from covering the conflict. And these are quoted from the letter. The Middle East is complicated. We need to hear both sides, and everyone has a lot of emotions about this. 
This letter also quotes the United Nations and human rights organizations that call what's happening in the occupied Palestinian territories a grave breach of international law. The letter does go on to say that some groups call it ethnic cleansing and that the media should cover it as such. And the letter's final call to action, they said, uh, was, quote, simple, that all the tenets of journalism should apply to Canadian coverage of occupied Palestinian territories moving forward. Fair and balanced coverage should include historical and social context, reporters with knowledge of the region, and, crucially, Palestinian voices. Major journalists that sign this list include Sena Syed, who is the host of AJ+, CBC Party Lines and Pop Chat host Elamine Abdelmahmoud, Globe and Mail's new podcast host Tamara Kandekar, Toronto Star's labour reporter Sarah Mojahajadeh, Toronto Star's race columnist Shri Paradkar, and Toronto Star's podcast host Adrian Chung. And what was originally meant to be a letter for journalists has now been signed by many others as well. Academics and students are among the 2,000 plus people that have signed this letter. Now, how I would like to connect this to the social media posts that ran in Canadian media and kind of misdirected us for a moment is, is to say that when we are rushing to to meet the news cycle where we need the headlines and the content and Boy, if we can get our hands on those videos, we'll publish them immediately. But I often wonder, you know, who is in the newsroom making those decisions at that time? And this letter is kind of asking that question, you know, are we getting fair and balanced coverage? Who is in the newsroom? And and as it, I think as far as, as from where I'm sitting today at the time of this recording, it seems to me that we missed the mark this past weekend in the in, in the coverage. What did you think of the of the uh, open letter? I mean, I thought the open letter was right on. Uh, it's 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 absolutely needed in this moment to kind of have this push from the inside uh, to push for like a greater understanding and context, and also just like crucially to highlight Palestinian voices. You know, um, I was talking with a friend of mine who has been following the Israel Palestine debate for for years and years, and and I asked him, you know what do you think is different in this moment right now, right? Because this, this of course, isn't the first time that Israel has bombed Gaza like this. There was a war really similar to this in 2009 and then again in 2014, right? And so we're, we're sadly seeing this basically like every five years. Right. So Aaron, is, is there something different about this moment this time? So I think what people are saying, what is different crucially right now is that Palestinian voices are actually being heard on national Canadian media and they're not being presented as, you know, terrorist sympathizers like they might have been in the past, uh, but they're being presented as, you know, experts of their own experience, right? So we had, you know, for example, Diana Butu, who's a brilliant Palestinian Canadian lawyer, was on The Current uh, just this past week. Uh, you had Rami Khoury, who is another, you know, Palestinian academic, was on Canada Tonight. And so those things, I think, are really significant. I was having this conversation even with my dad the other day, and, you know, I love my dad. He identifies as pro-Israel. Like, you know, as Jews, we're having these debates in our families all the time. And I asked my dad, too. I said, you know, dad, like, what do you think is different right now? My dad said, well, it used to be that when Israel would go to war, there would just be blanket support of, of Jews, you know, supporting Israel. And my dad's saying, we're definitely not seeing that right now. Like, you're definitely hearing the discord within the Jewish community. And so I think those two things are, are, are really, really crucial and important to point out. 
And like just, you know, coming back to this open letter, I would say it is really shameful, like the lack of coverage in the CBC around this watershed moment uh, that they describe in the open letter, which uh, happened at the end of April when Human Rights Watch came out with a report finding that, you know, Israel is committing crimes of apartheid and persecution. And it was picked up by the Globe and Mail by Canadian press, but absolutely nothing in CBC, right? And the longer they remain silent, or the longer that we just kind of, they kind of shrug their shoulders and they go, well, you know, this will go away uh, soon. Uh, Let's just ride this out. Um, I think the worse off it gets. I want to get to one last point, and I think it's an important one. A dear craftsman who identifies as communications for Sija uh, was was tweeting about in response to Jesse and Dalia Masri's uh, conversation uh, last week and there were well I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll just I'll just read some of the tweets yesterday Candlelands Jesse Brown hosted Dalia Masri to talk about Canadian media coverage of Israel and Palestine it took only three minutes for the first age-old anti-semitic conspiracy theory to come up when Dalia accused Jewish Canadian organizations of buying off the media the, in the media landscape at least there's some kind of a status quo and a fear that is attached to reporting on Palestine and this fear extends from a lot of lobbying against journalists and against media corporations. It also extends because of, you know, oftentimes we don't know who's donating to these media corporations. Can I just interrupt? Because uh, that's that's sort of a, a specific uh, aspect that I I hadn't heard anyone suggest before. Are you aware of any like actual financial donations to media or to mainstream Canadian media organizations that you, you know, I'm wondering uh, what you thought of Craftman's uh, tweet thread. And uh, when it comes to, to, to antisemitism, did you feel like that episode of, of Canada land sort of checked the boxes as it relates to the, as Adir says, age old antisemitic conspiracy theory? No, no. I think in that particular part of the interview, Dahlia misspoke. And and I mean, it's it's important, of course, to, you know, to challenge people when when they make mistakes or when they misspeak. I know Dahlia. I, I think she does brilliant work. Um, I think it's really, really sad and unfortunate to see how young Palestinians, especially women and people of color, often get smeared and maligned when they speak out uh, in support of, of Palestinian rights. You know, like like Dahlia misspoke for maybe 10% of that interview. The other 90%, she was absolutely spot on with what she said. So I think it's, you know, we've all misspoken in interviews before. It's kind of like part of doing this work. And so to take what someone says in 10% of an interview, one should not allow that to discount the other amazing 90% of what they said. And I know for a fact that Dahlia isn't anti-Semitic, you know? Right. And what we need to be doing in this moment is listening to what young Palestinian Canadians are saying. And of course, you know, challenging people when they say something that's inaccurate, that's totally fine. But to jump from that to anti-Semitism is ridiculous and unfair. Mm. Aaron, my dear friend, thank you. You know, thank you sincerely for for walking me through this we just need more of this just sitting and chatting so thanks for taking the time it's a pleasure Aaron, you might know that on this show, we duly note things, uh, things that we think deserves amplifying or, or things that we might have overlooked other than the maple leafs and the habs facing off 
in the Stanley Cup playoffs this year. I, I, I don't think we've had enough coverage. What do you want to talk about today in our duly noted? Well, I definitely don't want to talk about the Leafs versus Habs because like, as, as a passionate Habs fan, the Habs are going to go down so hard and it's embarrassing. But anyways, <laughs> I can't believe I just said that on record. What I did want to duly note was... Um, a sports-related story, but actually something that is also related to what we were just talking about. Because, Ryan, as you may know, um, one of the beats that I've covered in the past have been, you know, these intersections between uh, sports and, and politics. And, and specifically, I covered hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, the story I wanted to bring is actually about uh, football, or soccer, as we call it here. And it's a story that it got picked up in just a few outlets. Uh, one of the places I saw it was Middle East Eye. And so, uh Leicester City, uh, Leicester City's football club just recently won the FA Cup. And following their victory, which was this past Saturday, two Leicester City football players, Hamza Saudri and Wesley Fofana, uh, celebrated by unfurling uh, a Palestinian flag on the pitch, you know, as they were being presented with the cup. And it was just, you know, it was really incredible and inspiring to see because that image got beamed all over the world. And then just a couple of days later, uh, Paul Pogba, who plays with Manchester United, who's a famous French footballer, I mean, he was part of the uh, the French team that won the World Cup a few years ago, uh, did the same. Uh, I mean, their, their match resulted in, in a draw, uh, but Pogba also uh, unfurled a Palestinian flag uh, on the pitch following the game. And, and what I think is really fascinating about these stories uh, is it's, you know, it's really similar to what we were seeing with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, last summer where you had basketball players uh, first going on strike. And then, of course, you know, like all the teams, you know, Toronto Raptors, LA Lakers all had Black Lives Matter slogans on their jerseys. And to me, what was so wild about that story is that it even made its way into the hockey world, which like hockey is such a depoliticized sport. Yeah. And so, you know, all of these political issues, we're oftentimes kind of discussing them in like our own little social media echo chambers. But what really brings them to like a huge international audience is when they hit the sports world. And so when footballers or when athletes take these gestures, you know, football is is the most watched, I should say soccer, right? Like not talking about the CFL or anything. <laughs> uh, soccer is the most watched sport in the world. Uh, and we know that, you know, yeah. even, you know, the... Um, the English Premier League like ha- has a massive audience uh, globally. And so when, when people turn on their TV screens to watch these matches and when they see these gestures of solidarity, it just hits such a massive audience and an audience that's kind of unconverted, right? Like an audience that isn't necessarily thinking about politics in their day to day, but all of a sudden right. is like confronted with these images and, and have to engage in the debate in some way or another. So um, yeah, footballers showing up for Palestine. That's what I wanted to to duly note well and and you know often sports fans will say ah leave the politics out of it and you go well we sing the national anthems before the game and they go oh yeah <laughs> so you go duly noted uh aaron i have one please 
I wanted to shout out uh, Journalists for Human Rights and the second annual award for outstanding work by an Indigenous uh, youth reporter. Shortlisted for these awards this year are Chesney Martin, Oscar Baker III, and Shelby Lisk. I will say, full disclosure, I was on the jury uh, that read over all of the submitted pieces, and I, I, I will say um, that all of the submitted pieces were, were, were just incredible. And the work that is coming from these emerging Indigenous youth reporters, both inside of the JHR program and the Indigenous Reporters program and outside of it. It's just so inspirational. These these three short-listed pieces uh, really, really stood out uh, for me, and I just briefly want to take you through them. Chesney Martin, who's Haudenosaunee from Seneca Nation, uh, living on Six Nations, who's Turtle Clan, she was nominated for her story, um, How You Can Reconcile on Stolen Land, which was published by The Pigeon. Oscar Baker III, who's Black and Mi'kmaq. He's a freelance journalist from El Sibuktuk uh, First Nation. His story, a story of resilience, decision to take son off of life support, still haunts member two First Nation father, which was published by the Cape Breton Post, is an unbelievably nuanced and complex look at uh, dying uh, as an Indigenous person and the, de- and the decisions uh, Indigenous families are making uh, as it pertains to the right to die. And uh, Shelby Lisk, who is a Ganyagahaga photographer, filmmaker, and journalist with roots uh, in Montreal. She is the Indigenous hub staff writer for the Agenda TVO, where her story, How Families Are Passing Down Indigenous Language, was published. And it was written in Ganyangahaga and translated to English. And I just have to say, these three stories uh, really blew my mind and um, really, really proud to have been on the jury, uh, to have read them and experienced uh, all of that work. So big congratulations to all of them. Yeah, for sure. Mazel tov. And I mean, Indigenous youth journalists are leading the way. And, and I think what's amazing about these kinds of opportunities is it puts people on people's radar. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. 
but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Okay, Aaron, I don't know if you saw this, but it uh, just the other day, Michelle Latimer uh, broke her silence since being called out back in December for declaring ties to a First Nation that did not claim her. And it turns out a First Nation that she doesn't quite claim in an exclusive interview with the Globe film editor and deputy arts editor Barry Hertz got a chance to sit down with Michelle uh, after the CBC piece that questioned her Indigenous identity, it was in the format of a pretty basic and simple Q&A. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It just is what it is. It was a Q&A. And as complicated as this conversation is to have as an Indigenous person inside of Indigenous communities themselves, and I can assure you the conversation is ugly, I kind of wonder out loud, like, how was and and how is Barry Hertz situating himself in this conversation and and I think it's pretty clear why Michelle may have chosen the Globe and Mail I mean they you know Michelle is is now suing the CBC for libel so I don't think she was going to run back to talk with them mm. um, but Hertz and the Globe and Mail held the conversation and and you know begs the question would this conversation be different if it was held by an Indigenous journalist. Willow Fiddler tweeted, Lordy, Lordy, I would have loved to interview her. And I think this was the sentiment of, of many of us in the Indigenous journalism space. Like, we would have talked to you. We would have sat down and asked some questions. And it's curious as to why she chose to go this way in response to the original piece. So, Aaron, I guess I just want to know, did you get a chance to read the pieces? And um, what did you see in these articles? Yeah, I mean, wow. It's like we thought talking about Israel Palestine was complex. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there. As a settler, I don't really feel like it's my place to necessarily be weighing in on this debate. I'm just curious to know. I mean, you know, to to, to even hear that, you know, indigenous folks would have conducted that that Q&A differently. I mean, how do you think it would have gone differently uh, had someone else done it? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the quotes from Latimer um, that, that really stuck out for me was, and she says she has, quote, contemporary kinship ties to Kitigan, Zibi, and Anishinaabe, which is uh, the Algonquin First Nation community. It's about 120-some-odd kilometers north of Ottawa. So the quote is, contemporary kinship ties. And I think that in the case of, of, of Indigenous identity, this is, this is what we often, this is the language we often use, right? Kinship, uh, family, relationality, relationships, reciprocity. And, and I think that this is really what this conversation is about, is like, if we are claiming mm. an identity, we have to position ourselves. And, and that, that, that positionality matters. It's, it, it's important. And why is it important? Well, it's actually what our existence is, is really about. Like, if we are 
indigenous peoples alive in the world in 2021, I think through our teachings, through our language, through my, our worldview and our understanding, we are made to be responsible back to each other, back to the whole. It's not what we take, it's what we give in our life. And it's, and it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful way to live. And so in claiming identity, I think, you know, this, this idea of contemporary kinship relations, it feels like borrowed language. Uh, it, it feels like, I don't know what that means in her context. If we're talking about the way she supported Indigenous artists in her television series, and that she created jobs through Trickster, and that that's a contemporary kinship relationship, then sure, you, you've managed to check the boxes. But by her positioning herself the way she, she has, expertly, by the way, uh, with the help, I understand, of Navigator, um, which is very interesting to me, and a couple of academics that have widely been shunned by the Métis academic community uh, for their work and their understanding of the Eastern Métis identity and what that means to the Métis question in Canada. I have to say, I still don't know who this person is, and I still don't know why it matters. Uh, to her. And, uh, you know, I read the three pieces. I read, I read the original piece by uh, Ganeseo Deer and, and Jorge Barrera. Mm. I read the Globe and Mail piece by Barry Hertz. I read Michelle's blog. And I read the follow-up by Jorge. And I have to say, the, the same questions remain. Mm. Um, I, I don't know why it matters to her. Yeah. I mean, like one thing I think that's like really interesting too, is that like, you know, my understanding of this is that it's all going to go to trial next year um, and it's going to be tried in Canadian courts. And I'm wondering if, if even that is kind of like problematic too, right? Like why should it ultimately come down to Canadian courts to rule or to weigh in on these matters that clearly I think have a lot more to do with like indigenous legal frameworks and understandings. I think this is the crux of it, right? Is that the academics that that Latimer used really do use sort of the crown legal framework uh, for the conversation, mm. which you know any indigenous person can tell you, you know, falls wildly short of expectations in our lives, and by doing so, I should say, ultimately does erase and vanquish the Métis you know, lawful re relationship uh, responsibilities, right? And the responsibilities that we have as First Nations people, in Indigenous people writ large, in relation to Métis communities and Métis families and peoples, and how we, amongst ourselves and each other, have sort of worked out our relationality through time. And the Crown, of course, wants to subsume that and erase that conversation completely. Mm. So it is curious that these are the tools that are being used. And, and I want to clarify, I, I said, I don't know why it matters to her. I think it matters to her if she feels like she is Indigenous and that she is reclaiming her space and that she, she wants to uh, live her life as a non-status, mixed-blood, Algonquin, Métis person, she should. No one's going to prevent you or stop you from doing that. My understanding of this question, this entire question, is about who has the right and who understands the responsibility 
of speaking for these communities, you know, as it relates to their stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we've learned is the Kitagon, Zibi, and Shnabe, and many in the Métis community have asserted that she doesn't have that right. Now, we're talking about creative industries. We're talking about making films and television and, and, and telling fictional stories. And so the larger question, I think the much more interesting question, the question we haven't even talked about yet is like, how about let's point it to me? Because I, I don't care about Michelle Latimer. I don't want to talk about this. And if we're going to, the much more interesting question is like, do I have a right to tell a Cree story as an Ojibwe person? Like if we're really going to nail down into this understanding of relationship and, and, and kinship and family and nationhood, there's much more nuanced, complex and interesting and valuable conversation to have that we aren't having because we are stuck on the surface and being thrown dates and names and, and quote, experts that ultimately have the interest of one person in mind, right? The self-interest of Michelle Latimer in mind. Mm -hmm. And there's a much larger question that I think is interesting. And by keeping the conversation on Latimer, we're not listening to Métis people, right? right? We're, not, we're not listening to the people affected by the fallout of this. And so I hope this is the last time we utter that name on this show. It will be the last time I utter that name on a, po <laughs> on a podcast. I'm already widely hated by the Indigenous community for ever saying anything. And they can all eat my shorts, man. Like one person we probably don't necessarily need to be hearing from in all of this is Jonathan Kay. And he wrote an opinion piece in the National Post about it where he called all this a progressive witch hunt. And um, I mean, it's like he's trying to chalk it up to this whole other ridiculous debate around cancel culture, which for me ignores the fact that the Canadian state literally tried to cancel indigenous people. And that's the bigger story. I think that we always need to be talking about again is bringing it back to, you know, the fact that we have this history of, of residential schools and, and cultural genocide. And obviously that shouldn't be the only discussion around indigenous identity and, and around indigenous culture when it is a vibrant and beautiful space. But people have to understand that that is the backdrop upon which these conversations around identity uh, take place. I think it would be astute of us in our show notes to link to all of the pieces on uh, the Latimer conversation for you, the listener, to um, dig in yourself and, uh, and, and come up to your own conclusion, have the information in your brain, um, because, you know, the headlines, the tweets uh, don't do the conversation justice. And there's a lot of information there about who the players are, what their interests are, what their self-interests are, and uh, the limitations in the scope of this conversation. And I think if you're going to listen to this podcast and weigh in on it in any way in social media, uh, do your due diligence on those pieces and inform yourself, because it's, a, it's not a straightforward conversation. That is Shortcuts this week. You can email Jesse about how much you hated me at jesse at canadaland.com. He reads everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. You can find me, Ryan McMahon, at RM Comedy. Aaron, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet that often, but I'm at Aaron Lakoff on Twitter. And I just wanted to say, go Habs, go. And Austin Matthews should shave his damn mustache. And I hope me saying that gets Candleland more hate mail than anything I ever said about Israel-Palestine. 
This episode is produced most excellently by the brilliant Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.